Hi, I'm Al. This is CB Music Club. Welcome to CB Music Club. And welcome, as always, to Chris. Hello. To Will. Hello. And to Nick. Hello. Hello there, chaps. Nice to see you all. Hope you're all well. Yeah, lovely to see you too. Lovely good, to good, see good. you all. So, first question this week. All important. What the hell have you guys been listening to? Following up from our singles club last week, I went in search of a bit more Arabi Bazaar, mm. which was my, my chosen single of the week. And uh, yeah, he's got three albums, I think, on Bandcamp at the moment, all put out within the last sort of 12 months. I don't know whether he's just been busy during lockdown or stored them all up and stuck them out there. Um, only listened to one of them. Quite enjoyed it. Very different from the single that we listened to, which was, if you remember, very, very low-key. A uh, bit of keyboard and singing over the top in a kind of charmingly lo-fi way. Um, and very, very short, minute and a half. The last track in his album's over 10 minutes long, so he's not wow. generally kind of little short ones. It was good. It's quite satirical. A little bit of humour in there, a little bit of politics, and very musically different from the little Plinky Blonky single that we listened to. I kind of picked up a bit of Divine Comedy from yeah, last week, that, and there's yeah. a bit more of that kind of vibe going on on his album bit of Morrissey it's that kind of thing you know with a little bit of sort of almost kind of Carter USM kind of lyrical wordplay going on on the whole quite enjoyed that I bought the single that we reviewed last week Song of the Ostrich and I did I only listened to one other song by them which is called The Sticks I stuck it on Uh our playlist from last week's podcast on YouTube I will listen to more I'll get around to it probably buy more of the stuff because yeah why not interesting Certainly had his album had a bit more um, complexity than might have been suggested by the single mm. that we reviewed last week. But yeah, good. Enjoyed it. And the other thing I've been listening to, not necessarily by choice, but is just enormous amounts of David Bowie, which just seems to be played nonstop on Six Music at the moment because we hit five years five from years, the anniversary yeah. of his death. Five years. What a surprise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Damn, you beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really a Bowie fan during his lifetime but one of the early pleasures of lockdown was um going through his back catalogue through the beauty of online streaming will what have you been listening to i try to find a band that i've never heard of before and i managed to do that a band called lanterns on the lake and that warmed me to them straight away um idiosyncratic names and i pulled out an ep called the realist and i was listening to that esther my wife was listening to it and she said it's a bit bjorky and it's a bit gold frappy neither which of those two bands i would have anything to do with normally <laughs> um, but i, I kind of liked it it was four tracks on it the one outstanding track on it roman's very good and there was a instrumental at the end which was not bad so yeah listening to those and quite pleased to have gone out there and got some new music where are they from do you know anything about the band well they're from the northeast fronted by a female singer who plays piano and i think is one of the main songwriters if you look on their website there's uh, lots of decent merch there's t-shirts and mugs you're very keen on band merchandise aren't you will <laughs> i am and I, th- I think any band out there who are trying to take themselves seriously should be getting merch on their website straight away if they haven't got any already and if they haven't got any to make it up key rings ironing board covers that sort of thing yeah details yeah i think it's a good idea details yeah handkerchiefs that sort of thing. Is this a new release album that you've listened to, Lanterns in the Lake? Yeah, it's out in January. It's good. 
it's well worth a listen. I look forward to hearing them. Also listening to, well, I've got a friend who's got a band, Visa Baby. That's Scott and Sam. What's it called? Visa Baby. They put a, a few songs out, not last year, the year before. So it's not new stuff, but the um, album we're listening to this week kind of reminded me a little bit of their style. And I think I now remember Scott saying that he was influenced by them. One of the songs definitely worth listening is Something Cool. Nick, what have you been up to? I was watching a live concert by a band called Midlake, a concert they'd done in Texas, I think. don't know if you know that band, sort of American folk rock I know the name, but I don't know the music. Yeah, I think they're one of these quite influential bands for musicians, and they've played with a lot of interesting people as well as doing their own stuff. It's a sort of kind of nice live concert in a small club in a small town in Texas. And the other thing was sort of from the sublime to the ridiculous listening to an experimental hip-hop musician called Madlib who uh, had an album called Shades of Blue where he had been remixing old Blue Note jazz records doing a, a sort of hip-hop remixes. There's no lyrics, it's just a kind of groove thing. So I was quite enjoying that as well. Sounds interesting. That's called Damning with Faint <laughs> Praise. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Soon um, I know that as soon as I mention hip-hop in front of these guys. Ach, no, I mean, it's um, it's their own... You, you can't like damn it. it if you haven't heard of it. You can. I mean, it's a bit pointless, but you can. Of course you can damn mm. it. <laughs> Without hearing it? Well, yeah. But that doesn't mean damn to see... You. Yeah, I mean, it's. A stu- I'm not saying it's... it's fun. Uh, it's an adult thing to do, but it's quite enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, I've been listening to Stephen Maltmus and the Jicks. Um, I, saw, uh, I saw on YouTube... An interview Stephen Maltmus did with, I can't remember which publication, in a theatre in Portland, Oregon, where he lives. And uh, I'm never quite sure what to make of Maltmus, the man. He seems to be quite a difficult figure, but, you know, he's tall and he's slim and he's good looking for a 55-year-old. I don't know. And, you know, he was in pavement, I like pavement, and the Jicks do sound kind of like pavement. And, uh, yeah, I've been listening to some of their stuff, just like random choices. And um, mainly, though, I've been listening to Bill Baird. <laughs> You may recall Bill Baird from uh, last week's single reviews. And and I did the right thing. And I went to Bandcamp and I paid $10 to download what I thought was going to be 50 songs. But it was 50 releases, of which maybe 15 of them were individual songs and the rest were albums. <laughs> and it's just like hundreds and hundreds wow. and hundreds That's of songs. a large body of work. Yeah, so many that I haven't actually finished unpacking them from their zip files yet. Uh, I've only listened to one of the albums, the magnificently named Never Heard Of Him, a Bill Baird sampler. It's actually pretty great. It's got the song that we were talking about last week. Uh, not a perfect person on it as its opening track but there's three or four songs on there that I thought were absolutely fantastic and some that you know not so keen on but I mean I've listened to it once so it's a bit early to be judging but I think that Bill Baird seems to have been quite a good find to be honest Do we know anything about Bill Baird? The stuff that's on Bandcamp goes back quite a long way I think he was in a band called Sound Team Texan Band and there's a couple of Sound Sound Team albums on there and the stuff that he's done since under various different names as well before there's these many Bill Baird releases. But I don't really know anything about him. No, I mean, I, I don't know Sound Team. A lot of it reminds me of the Flaming Lips, especially pre-Soft Bulletin Flaming Lips when, you know, the things... Uh-huh. It just reminded oh, me of things like, you know, you know about their parking lot stuff. experiments and stuff like that and all the... Yeah, yeah. 
sort of weird experimental stuff they were getting up to and you know working in home studios and he just seems to be a very prolific guy recording this fairly lo-fi stuff it's on Bandcamp for next to nothing at the moment and I do think you should go over and just pay the guy some money and get a lot of music anyway all that talk just preamble isn't it to uh, the important question of the week what are you drinking Chris are you still dry Januarying? well it's still flipping January yeah but it's not dry it's raining outside when I was out earlier but there's only I don't know there's only 17 days left aren't there and i'll probably break my fast at buns night so it's only 10 days to go so i'm on ginger beer with a little slice of lime and a bit of ice to make it feel slightly more special and i'd like to say i felt absolutely wonderful having not drunk for the last 14 days but i don't really feel any different to be honest just quite <laughs> like a drink <laughs> well are you back Cheers. on the wagon yeah back on it esther ran into a couple of people she knows, Stuart Watson and Kate Watson. But Stuart said to us that um, he really liked our podcasts and he's an avid listener. So hence I'm giving Stuart a shout out. Friend and of the show. Hi, Stu. Hi, Stuart. Stu. And he, he particularly liked the, uh, the bit where I kind of talk about the, uh, the non-alcoholic stuff because he's on the wagon as well. So he's, he's always interested to know what it is I'm, I'm doing. It's Blossom Cottage Morello Cherry Cordial, which I'm having with soda water. And to be honest, it's, it's a bit cherry dish I was expecting a little bit of a richer cherry um, experience, but it's still, still quite nice. Blossom <laughs> Cottage Cherry Cordial. Yeah, Morello. Morello Cherry. cherry. Morello cherry. Not just mm-hmm. any old cherry. Wow. Nah. Mm. Nick, tell me about some alcohol. Save please. us. Talk to I, us um, about some alcohol. I'm I'm drinking ginger beer. Yay! With <laughs> some here comes a kick and uh, a slice of lime, and I do have some rum. Hey, it's more it. like it. Claw it back. Yes, just to make up for these guys, I'm going to drink their share. You realise next time I am just going to be drinking neat vodka all night, just to just to balance the uh, yeah. dry January. I'm drinking beer. I got a combination of Joker IPA, which is made in Aloha. So it's nice Scottish beer. You guys know how much I like the Bad Company uh, American Pale Ale. But uh, I've decided to experiment with their West Coast Pale Ale tonight and see what that's like. Cheers then, chaps. Okay, um, quick musical interlude, and then Nick is going to give us a lovely talk about the year 1995. So, do any of you remember 1995? Yes. yes. Vaguely. 25-ish years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago. Probably about the time we were all approaching our pomp. I think I was on the way downhill at that point. <laughs> <clears throat> I was just getting started and also on the way downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Been a long road since. 1995 was the first year of the privatised internet. It was the first year that America Online and Prodigy released browsers making the World Wide Web accessible to the general public. And I do have a vague recollection of starting to do that, at least at work, dialing in 
I started a business the year after this and I can remember buying a computer around about that time and starting to dial in and use the internet. It's amazing how far we've come. But that was happening then with Bill Clinton was the US president, John Major was re-elected in the UK, Chirac won an election in France. 1995 was the year that Bering's bank collapsed after Nick Gleason lost $1.4 billion speculating on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. That's small change now. <clears throat> Yeah. Oklahoma City bombings killed 168 people. Timothy McVeigh, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. South Africa won the Rugby World Cup and that was the last Rugby World Cup before rugby went professional. You might remember the visual images of Nelson Mandela lifting the trophy with the South African rugby team. I do indeed. And I don't even remember him being on the pitch. <laughs> where, where did he play? Uh, on the wing, there was war in the Balkans, so there was stuff going on in the European courts around war crimes in that area. There was the official end of Desert Storm, actually came in 95 as well, that was when they switched that off completely. Sony released the PlayStation, there's another bit of a technology step forward. Windows 95, of course, appeared as well. The other thing that I found personally interesting was that Seamus Heaney won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and the reason I found that interesting is that he taught my mum English Literature at University in Queens and Belfast. Um, when she was a teenager she was involved in the university magazine I think she was editing it and they they first published Seamus Heaney that's where his first poetry 1995 was also a big year for music there was all sorts of things going on it was the year that was in the UK was kind of dominated by the Blur and Oasis Fandango I think is the way I'm going to describe it but there was lots of other things going on it was the year Richie Edwards from the Mannix went missing never seen again it was the year that Bill Berry had a brain aneurysm on stage with R.E.M. It's also the year that Robbie Williams quit Take That. Big albums for Radiohead, for Oasis, Blur, Smashing Pumpkins, Pulp, Bjork. Portishead won uh, The Mercury with Dummy. Bruce Springsteen won a Grammy for uh, the record of the year with Streets of Philadelphia. Best New Artist the Grammys in, in America in 1995 was Cheryl Crow. Best alternative act in the US was Green Day. But of course, it was in the UK, it was all about Blur and Oasis and their Britpop battle. Oasis had released a single role with it at the same time as Blur's Country House. And we had endless media coverage of the battle for the number one spot, which was eventually won by, can anyone remember? That was Blur. 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 Was it Pope? It was Blur. <laughs> it was Blur. It was Blur in the end, who won the battle for the, the single. But actually, when it came to them, both bands releasing their albums a little bit later on in the year, Oasis' success, I think, seemed to dwarf that of Blur. And it really became apparent who was the dominant Britpop band at that point. Although there were lots of other interesting acts releasing albums that year, including Pulp, Supergrass, Charlatans, Elastica and Echo Belly. Sort of Britpop thing in the UK was riding high. Black Grape had released an album that year. We had The Levelers having some success. Paul Weller um, released Stanley Road and suddenly came back into fashion at that point. uh Take That, of course, were at their height. Simply Red around E17, Celine Dion, Michael Jackson were having hits East. Uh, Robson and Jerome were riding high in the charts as well. Everyone's talking about the success of Oasis and Blur in that year, 
But Robson and Jerome had two of the top three best-selling singles of the if year. If I remember rightly, Unchained Melody was the biggest seller, wasn't it? Un- Unchained Melody was the biggest mm. seller, and I believe was the third biggest seller. The single that split them was Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise, <laughs> and Take That Back for Good was fourth. The best-selling album of the year was Robson and Jerome's self-titled album as well. Wow. They cleaned up. <laughs> they absolutely cleaned up. There was a, a Bruce Springsteen Greatest Hits. I know that's he's a, a favourite of this podcast. Mm. Beautiful South released an album. Wet, Wet, Wet were still going. The Boo Radleys had a number one album mm-hmm. in 95 as well. Um, that's a good album. The Pulp Fiction soundtrack won Best Soundtrack. God, was that from 95 uh, as well? Award that year. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another big single, which was something you'll recall, was by the Rembrandts, I'll Be There For You. Uh-huh. <laughs> which is 1995, although it was originally used, I think, for the um, Friends soundtrack in when they launched that programme in 94. But the single was released to global success in 95. So that kind of was what was going on in 1995. So this Battle of Britpop, who, uh, who were you cheering on? Blur or Oasis? Blur. Oasis. Nick? I, I was fairly ambivalent, I have to say, yeah, at the time. Yeah. I... I didn't, I, you know, I didn't particularly like, I'm not, I wasn't particularly keen on Blur's attitude, quite like their music, probably preferred them musically to Oasis, but I kind of liked Oasis' bullshit nature. Uh, I was very much inside of Blur, oh, although really? it's not a good Blur song by their standards. No. No, Country House is my least, one of my least favourite Blur singles. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not a bad well, song. Well, yeah. problem, I didn't really good. like either single. Yeah. A role with it's terrible. Neither I single mean, was that good. Roll With It is a terrible song, though. It's got no redeeming features whatsoever, whereas Country House does have that little breakdown with the, the high-pitched singing. Um, I can't even remember what it is they're singing. There's some stuff to like in Country House, but Roll With It is a dreadful song. I, mean, I, I was going to say, did Oasis release a worse single? But then I, I'm forgetting that they had a career after that, so yeah, they did, didn't they? It may be a bad song, but it spawned an equally brilliant bad joke, which was, um, do you want some Oasis soup? You get a roll with it. <laughs> Very good. Boom. <laughs> Yowza. Yeah, sorry, I just had to know whose side we were all on in, in the war. It was a funny time. There are very few times when the top 10 goes. I suppose it was called Go Viral, but we didn't have the internet back then, so you can really call it Go Viral. Well, you did have the internet then. <laughs> 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 as we've already established yeah got pay attention Chris <laughs> when the battle for the number one slot actually makes kind of national headlines it's a rare rare moment and this was one of those times where you know the news at 10 was reporting who yeah. won it and it was yeah, yeah. you know it just it just went beyond where the charts would usually go and it was kind of entertaining for that and it was a it was a good energetic exciting time in music and it had come after a fairly you know the early 90s weren't brilliant um, oh god i love the early 90s musically but then it wasn't british music i was listening to it was american yeah stuff, so, yeah but it kind of did i mean for everything that was awful about Britpop, it did it did have a nice kind of it, it felt refreshing and it kind of cleared out cleared the way for a whole load of other bands there'd been nothing between uh, kind of madchester and then there was a big gap before Britpop came along and there was a lot of kind of dance stuff getting in which just really wasn't by that point dance music had become very kind of by numbers and not very all the stuff that was getting into charts anyway it was just not very interesting but there was lots of it and it was all very very similar and it kind of took Britpop to, to kind of clear through that and clear the way for some great stuff the battle between Blur and Oasis was absurd um, Pulp but by far the better band 
yeah, two of the least interesting songs you could have selected as well. There was a lot better. Do you know, I'm saying I was ambivalent about it, but I, I did buy both singles. <laughs> I didn't buy I either, them. and I really cared. <laughs> no, I didn't buy, I didn't buy um, either. But yeah, when you think, you know, uh, Misshapes and Common People off a different class that year, I mean, they're, they're far better songs. Yeah, 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 than, yeah, yeah. Than absolutely. Those, yeah. absolutely. And it's just insane that neither of those got to number one. And of course, they've only been mentioned in passing, but um, The Bends, I mean, Radiohead, uh, The Bends is, is a fabulous album. Uh, a lot of good stuff going on in that. Yeah, Radiohead um, passed me by at that point. So that's 1995. The one album we haven't mentioned in our recap there of the music of 1995 is one of the ones that I was listening to, I can tell you. Grand Prix by Teenage Fan Club, which is our album of the fortnight. I've chosen it because despite wanting to use the podcast to explore new music that I don't know and things that I'm aware of but not familiar with, when you're presented with the opportunity to get the guys to listen to one of your very favourite albums and to hopefully convince some people listening that they should listen to this album, you got to take it, right? Teenage Fan Club had been, earlier in the 90s, 1991, they really were critical darlings. They, uh, there's the famous story about them getting the Spin Magazine album of the year in 1991 ahead of Nevermind. And this is the point that's always made, is that people can't believe that it could be selected ahead of Nevermind. But I would argue it's a much better album than Nevermind. And people are looking back and weighing the cultural significance of, of Nevermind, which in 1991, it didn't really have very much cultural significance. It had a couple of hit singles and sold quite well. Bandwagoness is good, but they were, you know, they were just a bunch of knockabout lads, didn't seem to take the whole thing very seriously. And then when they went to make their follow-up album, 13, I like it, but it was a bit of a critical and commercial failure. So when they came back in 1995, they really had something to prove with Grand Prix, and I think that they put everything that they had into this album and produced something quite, quite special. It's a great album, just a wonderful collection of pop songs, really. What I was really afraid of going back to this is I've always felt that it tails off quite badly at the end that I'm going to be selling this album as the greatest thing ever and then I'm going to listen to it back and think the second half of it's a bit rubbish. <laughs> so this is this is the mindset I went into it with. Um, Nick, I know that you obviously know this album very well as well. What was your mindset going into it? Like you, this is one of my favourite albums. It's, I'm a huge Teenage Fan Club fan, as you know. This isn't my favourite Teenage Fan Club album. My favourite Teenage Fan Club song is not on this album. But I do love this album. I think this is the album where they grew up, so I was quite excited about it. There was a little bit of me kind of doing the same thing as you, going, is it as good as I remember? But actually, I have listened to it more recently because they reissued the albums that Teenage Fan Club released on Creation Records two, three years ago. Yeah, 2018. Um, they put out the albums from Bandwagon-esque up to Howdy. Uh, so they re-released them and actually toured them as well. So not only had I listened to the remastered album, but I'd, I've seen them perform this album live from start to finish at the Barlands a couple of years ago as well. They did three nights and they did five albums plus a sort of kind of greatest hits bit over three nights. So I, I was pretty confident that uh, I was going to 
enjoy this and actually right. that the album was every bit as good as I remembered. So you knew what you were getting yourself into. Will, on the other hand, I think Absolutely. you 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 didn't know Teenage Fan Club, I don't think. So what what were you expecting? I was expecting absolute gold because that's that's <laughs> how you kind of put it out there. <clears throat> yeah, well, this is the problem. So yeah. you're setting it up. Um, no, not not really heard of Teenage Fan Club. When National Museum of Scotland did the Rip It Up, I'm kind of surprised they didn't have a a bigger presence in the exhibition, to be honest, yep. because this is a seriously good album and we're seriously good songwriting and seriously good uh, musicians. Chris, you're, you, I'm interested in what you thought because, or what you were expecting because I know that you didn't know Teenage Fan Club and you have friends such as me, such as Nick, um, who are big, I big friends. Yeah, and yeah, well, I've just named two of them. Um, Both of them. I'm, I'm struggling to think of any others. <laughs> But I just named two of them. Um, yeah, I mean we're we're big fans, and and you don't know him. So what what were you thinking? I was amb- I've always been ambivalent towards Teenage Fan Club. I was aware of them, but only really when I first came up to Scotland. For some reason, they just never really kind of um, crossed my bows when I was down south. I was in Bristol in '95. I was listening to loads of music. But for some reason, Teenage Fan Club never 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 came into my sphere of music listening. It's only to say when I came up to Glasgow. Uh, I was first aware of them, and uh, every Scottish friend that I know that loves music really likes Teenage Fan Club, and they just really passed me by. Um, but what I had heard of them, I just saw them live, saw them supporting the Pixies at Meadow Bank many years ago. Anyway, so yeah, I was kind of ambivalent towards them. I kind of, what I'd heard of them, I thought it just always sounded the same, and it didn't really excite me. That was how I came to this, this album. <laughs> I was wrong. I've decided since. Oh, that's From Grand Prix onwards, every album Teenage Fan Club recorded, they've got three songwriters, sort of frontman guitarist Norman Blake, the bassist Jared Love and guitarist Raymond McGinley. And they tend to all write four songs each for the album. And it just seems to me it's like, put your best song first. The first four songs of this album, in my opinion, is the greatest opening to any album that I know. There may be better out there. If so, I don't know him. Am I just getting a bit carried away here? What do you guys think? It is a strong start. It's a very strong start. That whole um, rotating the songwriting and singing and singing, Jude. They take turns to sing, do they? Yeah, yeah, they do. Really songs songs, yeah. I found that really interesting. It's not uh, not something that I'm particularly aware of other bands doing much. Not not so regularly. Obviously, people step up and have their moments, yeah. but to kind of do it as a very deliberate take a third of the album each and a third of the set list each and i was listening through trying to figure out who i liked best out of the three of them and i couldn't really they, they all they've all got some great tracks and they've all equally got some slightly weaker tracks so i think that to have three consistently great singers and songwriters in mm. the same band is extraordinary that's very true it's interesting because this is the first album that they did where raymond mcginley stepped up and joined norman blake and jerry love as an equal kind of partner mm. in that doing an equal number of songs but he's every bit they're equal when you you listen to all of their output certain albums jerry's songs might be a favorite or norman's songs might be a favorite on, on yeah. different things yeah. on this album my opinion is that Jerry's songs are extremely, are the, probably the strongest on this. This is Jerry's masterpiece, this album. This is Jerry's finest moment, I think. His songs are, are staggeringly good, I think. Uh, absolutely amazing. It's funny you say about Ray McGinley. I remember reading that they had the, this sort of initial burst of success, um, their first single, Everything Flows, was fabulous, and they created a real sort of critical buzz about them. And then they had their God Knows It's True EP afterwards, keeping that up. And they, they were really breaking and they signed for creation, but I don't... I, 
if I remember right, they didn't have a manager, and uh, and Ray was basically taking care of that side of things. So when they recorded Bandwagon S, yeah. or when they were playing Bandwagon S, he didn't actually have time to write any songs. And I think he has one song on it, maybe con- contributing to one or two others, but... Yeah, and he does. He does actually a couple of my favorite songs on the following album, Thirteen, are Ray McGinley songs. But yeah, you are right. Grand Prix, Grand Prix is Jerry Love's album. I mean, oh, oh, how such a, a a sort of the guy when you see him playing live, such a sort of diffident, sort of uninterested looking man can write these beautiful, heart wrenching love songs. Um, I have a habit, you know, the first sunny day of spring. I stick on the start of this album just because it it feels like summer, you know, and it feels it, it's just the sound of summer. It's the sound of sunny days for me. The beginning of this album, it's just the the most joyous, upbeat, happiest thing imaginable. It's just it's just great. One of the things that strikes me with the Teenage Fan Club is they don't sound like a Scottish band with that sense of joy and uplift. Not that Scottish bands are miserable, but you know they sound like a kind of West Coast. American band. Mm. They wear their um, influences pretty heavily. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they've never been shy of that. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing that I found interesting was like the, the first two tracks of this album, that's the sound that I associate with Teenage Fan Club. So when it came on to Mellow Doubt, well, the rest of the album, in fact, is so very different from those two opening tracks. I hadn't realized they'd got such a varied sound. Mm. It's interesting you say that because Mellow Doubt, for me, that song, I remember kind of like, oh, Something different is going on here. Mellow Doubt to me sounded like um, mm. kind of unplugged Nirvana. Oh, interesting. Um, I see it's been more sort of Neil Young or something like that. Yeah, Neil, I mean, I think for me nah. it was Neil Young, yeah. Yeah. Nah. Do you know, I never, it took me about a year to, uh, to get the pun of Mellow Doubt because the song is called Mellow <laughs> Doubt. Uh, and not mellowed out. And uh, it, it took me about a year before I realised that there was a bit of a play in words going on there. I'm really not very clever sometimes. Will, you've not had much to say. What have you... Um... No, I've been keeping quiet. Yeah. What What did you make of the opening of the album? Uh, I hate to be the odd man out, but song one and song two are happy, clever songs that the monkeys would have been quite happy to have kind of put out the album didn't start till track three for me the first tracks didn't do anything for me at all i mean good songs but track three was when the album started for me wow i can hear the daggers now i'm giving you daggers because of the implied criticism of the monkeys what the hell's wrong with you (laughs) (laughs) i'm a huge monkeys fan yeah jeez oh Sparky's Dream is uh, the first Jerry Love song on the album, and it's just spectacular. It's just a great pop song. It is. I mean, like I say, um, number one for me, I've written down Happy Tune, and then number two, Clever Happy Tune. So it, it, is, a, it is a better track, according to the, the way I, my, my taxonomy. How, how, just how, how many ticks, out of curiosity, have you given them? They, uh, they both got a tick each. Oh, that's all right then. Did Mellow Doubt get two? Um, no, but it, it it might have just got there, but not quite. One and a half. <laughs> a bigger tick. But but the, the the star of the opening for me is Don't Look Back. Back in 2005, 10 years after this album came out, I, on my birthday party, put together a Teenage Fan Club covers band <laughs> to play at my birthday party. Uh, and we called ourselves Middle-Aged Fan Club, Aww. obviously. And um, <laughs> Don't Look Back was our last song because we just thought it was the best one. That opening's amazing, and um, I, I'm, I'm very keen on the, the midsection as well, and I always was, but I, I, I did have a tendency to just listen to the first four songs when I listened to the album, and then go on something else, because although I think that track five, Verisimilitude, is a really brilliant song, it's almost like it's like the Andres Iniesta 
of the album Ooh. in that um is that a footballer? magnificent but but overshadowed by Messi and Javi ahead of him, you know. Although and Iniesta yeah, did okay. score the winning goal in the World Cup final, which um those guys didn't. So I don't feel sorry for him exactly. But you know, he would have been football of the year, Ballon d'Or winner multiple times in another era. I still couldn't quite decide with various various similitude. Um I kind of found it in equal parts charming and quite irritating for being a bit too smart for itself. You're clever. In its kind of yeah, you know, how many slightly complex words can you get to rhyme together? It was a little bit too clever for its own enjoyability, I thought. But the the musically it's lovely. It's really warm. It's 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 great. But the wordplay I just found a bit irritating. Oh, I like that about it. How how do you feel about that, Will? About verisimilitude. Well, yeah. <laughs> You keep on picking the ones that I'm going to take issue with. Um, <laughs> that you haven't listened to. <laughs> ah, no, no, I've listened to it. There's something wrong with it. And in the chorus, um, whoever is a songwriter, I, I don't know who, who wrote it. That, that's Ray. Um, deliberately tries so very hard to not use um, or, or go to what would be the, the, the expected resolution. And in doing that, it kind of is slightly confusing. So you've got this, this song with little bits of it that are truly amazing and brilliant, but it doesn't hang together as a complete song for me. It's not my favourite song on the album by any means, but the transition from the first chorus into the second verse is my favourite moment in the album. It's just done as a beautiful little sort of slate of hand and the way that the guitars change that's just really, really brilliant. And then you suddenly realise you're in the verse. No. And it's like, how did that happen? It's brilliant. And I, I, and I, and I heard that, like that. And I heard that. And it is quite amazing. But as it, And it's full of little things like that, but it doesn't add up to a complete song for me. Each their own. Even if you're wrong, yeah, indeed. you're still entitled to your opinion. <laughs> to the, the, the next song, uh, Neil Young, that's Neil Young, not Neil Young, is actually my least favourite one on the album, and it always was. And I think the, the reason for that is the album's biggest weakness is it's mastered too loud. And you can really hear it at the start of the album when About You begins and the guitars are very clangy and, and they are clipping a bit. And then when the singing starts, the guitars just get much quieter because it's the whole thing is just too loud. It's a bit of a mess. And Neil Young is just so intensely loud that I just don't enjoy listening to it. It's obviously a good song, but my least favourite on the album. But it seems to be one that's, that's quite beloved of a lot of Teenage Fan Club fans, I think. Yeah, I, bet you I quite it. enjoyed this one. I liked his voice in this. I do like it. I, I like the lyric, and I, and I like you know it's it's one of these things that when you become a fan and you start to understand or 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 you pick up the the story behind the song. So this is about Douglas Stewart from the BMX Bandits. This song is about one of his one of his best pals. It's about them falling out. <laughs> at a certain point you can hear it and you and you kind of know both people both the protagonist and the song and you're kind of go oh, that's interesting that he was able to put that out there i think it's i just find all that stuff fascinating actually talking about how his friend was changing and perhaps moving away from their friendship because he'd got a girlfriend i think a lot of people assumed at the time that the song was about kurt cobain because obviously kurt cobain was a big fan of teenage yeah. club and i think they were quite good friends with him and I think there was an assumption that, that this is who they were singing about and the, and the girlfriend who wasn't good enough for you was uh, Courtney Love I always said Courtney Pine but that's someone else entirely <laughs> 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 
Had they toured together in the past? Because it seems an unlikely pairing of, of Teenage Fan Club and Nirvana to get together as, as kind of um, yeah, they did, friends. Yeah, they had played together. Well, um, so yeah, they did. Yeah. Kurt Cobain talked about the first Teenage Fan Club album, Catholic Education, as being something that was quite influential on his songwriting. Actually, this is a recurring theme in Teenage Fan Club's career, is that all these bigger bands adopting them as their support act yeah. right the way through. And it started with Nirvana, but Radiohead had been touring with them as well as the support act. They supported Pixies, as you said, they supported... Dave Grohl had them supporting the Foo Fighters when they played at Old Trafford Cricket Ground, massive gig, um, because, yeah, Dave Grohl, obviously a big fan. I do think that's um, that sense of Teenage Fan Club never quite reaching their their pinnacle does kind of seem to strike a chord with me they, they i don't think they've ever really got that widespread respect that they deserved well, what was interesting was they were they always said they were always they took their making the music very seriously they did not take being a pop mm-hmm. be, being pop stars very seriously right so they weren't uh-huh. interested in in the fame and so on they just wanted to make these records they wanted to make and yeah, perhaps the other so the other bands kind of and and it's this recurring thing that actually it's a lot of musicians that really appreciate the songwriting craft and, and I think they they're just a bunch of kind of easygoing people that everybody seems to be able to get on with but yet they're really serious about the craft of it and so all these other acts who've come into contact with them either touring or in the recording studio or in a bit in awe of their talent but uh-huh. and kind of going. Look at these guys; they're amazing, but they're not as big as mm-hmm. us. But they work harder, or whatever the the thing is. That and how are they? I know them. I said I had seen them live, but again, it just kind of washed over me. <laughs> I was only there to see um, the Pixies, so I don't really remember a great deal about their performance. Are they primarily a studio band, or can they can they cut it live? Back in those days, they were legendarily shambolic, weren't they? Al, they were kind of there was it could go either way. <laughs> Yeah, it was a miracle if they managed one of those to get, things that bit, get through a song without restarting it, yeah. I was talking about how they seem to have grown up on this album, but I think the musicianship takes a jump yeah. on this record as well. Part of that is down to a new drummer. Yeah, well, and, I was about to say exactly um, that, yeah. So Brendan O'Hare had been moved on, and then Paul Quinn came in on this album. He'd been the drummer in the Soup Dragons. He's much more traditional in his approach to things. Brendan O'Hare was a Keith Moon character, was playing all sorts yeah. of fills in all sorts of odd places, and then you had somebody with real pop sensibility. This is a more grown-up album than what had gone before. There's less messing around, less filling about. Apart from the very last one, there's no really like stupid kind of joke songs. And a large part of that, I think, is the change of drummer but I think also a large part of the reason for the change of drummer was probably they're wanting to be a bit more grown up and a bit more serious and I think he makes a real difference I think um, About You track one that when it goes into the midsection and he just plays this nice little syncopated beat a bit behind the beat and it's just got this real swaying real feel to it and Brendan perfect though he was for the earlier stuff he just couldn't have played that or he wouldn't have played that rather I have an ex who knew Brendan O'Hare I used to get sexually harassed by Brendan O'Hare on Facebook quite regularly shocking (laughs) behaviour for a man who played drums for one of my favourite bands my Brendan O'Hare story was I was sick at his 21st birthday party at his mum's house Hey. It was his, it was in his mum's back garden. It's terrible. Oh. I was at university in Glasgow at the time and was friends with some folk from nearby who knew Brendan. Brendan knew everybody, I think. So we'd all been at a club in Glasgow and all invited back to his mum's house for a post-club party. And I had a bit too much to drink and I had to go and find a quiet corner of his mum's back garden and throw up. Still feel bad about that. 
Leave it for the fox. <laughs> well, she knows who it is now. My second favourite ever gig was by Teenage Fan Club. I saw them in, I think it was 1996. There was a sort of little music festival in Edinburgh alongside the Fringe called Planet Pop Festival, I think, and they were the headlining band. And it was all in this pub that's no longer there called the Cash Rock, 200 capacity. And 1996, they were at the height of their commercial success at that point. So to see a band doing that well in a venue that size was really quite special. And they, they just put on a fantastic show. There wasn't even a proper stage. It was amazing. To see a band that you love in, in, in circumstances like that is just a dream, isn't it? Two things I particularly remember about that is that Nor the Scotland uh, football team were playing in a way match that night and Norman kept asking people to check the score for him. We didn't have internet on our phones then, so I don't quite know how he would find out. And he kept going on about how they were going to play a 10-minute instrumental, uh, which obviously no one believed, but then they did. They played uh, Yola Tengo's I Heard You Looking as their last tune um, and it went on for 10 minutes and that was my introduction to Yola Tengo who I very much love and what happens now so Jerry's left now I understand Jerry so when left they... at the end of that 2018 tour it became his swan song because by this point they were looking to tour more regularly around the world I think but Jerry's an unhappy flyer and didn't really feel that they needed to do the global touring that the rest of them wanted to do uh -huh. And that became the wedge that he said, right, not, I don't want to tour anymore. And I suspect he probably thought that they would kind of go, right, oh, well, we'll just call it quits. The rest of the band said, no, we'll keep going. And, Turn again. So when um, they play live, would they play his songs? Or do they no, they don't. Well, they haven't don't. since. They brought in Dave, what's his name, from uh, Bell and Sebastian to come in and play keys. So he'd come in and play keyboards. Um uh, in their life set and become a permanent member of the band in their recent albums and then Jerry left so he took over on bass and they brought in Euros Childs he plays the keys and I do love that idea of musicians from different bands that have all kind of made it themselves just kind of mixing and matching I saw yeah. Teenage Fan Club 2019 Leith Theatre with you Nick I saw That's Euros right. Childs and the previous time that I'd seen Euros Childs playing live had been a solo gig supporting Yola Tengo it's like, it's all just like circles within circles within circles. It's all connected, isn't it? So Disco Light. I love Disco Light. I think it's a great song. <laughs> Possibly my favourite song on the album. I really love Disco Light. It's not a song that I've ever danced to, but I imagine when the line, the DJ plays your tune, comes on and you're at your club, you're going to be touching the ceiling at that point. It's just yeah, such yeah. a wonderful line of just joy. That third verse, it's a very Jerry Love thing that he does, is that... The last verse of his songs is usually different from the other verses of the song, whether there's another one or two. And he does it brilliantly here where it's got the same melody as the second verse, which doesn't have the same melody as the first verse, but it's done in a big style and it isn't broken down like the other ones are. And you're right, it's just that lift when that bit happens. It just like, it makes my heart race. It's just Something wonderful. that they do well on a number of songs. It's that, yeah. you know, those build-ups. Build, build, yeah, yeah. The kinda yeah. Take, the, take the Long Way Round, which is a Jerry Love song on their next album, uh, Songs from Northern Britain, does a similar thing. Um, and it's also fantastic. The third verse is just, oh, it's just great. Will, you, you've been quiet for a while. What's your view on Disco Light? What a great track. And, you know, if you put um, a brass section on the end of a pop rock song, then, you know, you'll have the keys of my heart forever. I, I just loved it. It kind of reminded me a little bit of... Um... That's not Disco Light, that's Tears. Oh, yeah. no. That's Chris's fault for skipping a tune. Okay. I've skipped a tune, have I? I don't like Tears. Wait. Move on. Well, anyway, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one that I liked. 
Um, also, Disco Light, also. Um, so they kind of, the, the last three songs, yeah, they all got three ticks for me. Wow. I think they're, they're the best songs on the album. My view of the album has long been, those first eight songs up to Disco Light, it's perfect. It can hardly be bettered. I mean, I, I go on about the first four because it's such a spectacularly strong opening and you just can't keep that intensity up for a whole album. But up to Disco Light, I've always felt that album was flawless. And then after that, I was always a bit like, man, that's usually when I turn it off. The rest of it, it wasn't new to me by any means, but I'd not really listened to these last four kind of five songs for a very long time. And I'll tell you what, they're much better than I remember. I like Say No. Very sweet, very gentle. And Going Places is a great song. I always find Going Places a bit boring, I must admit. But I was wrong about that. It's really good, especially coming into the you know the last chorus, that big bit of guitar that brings it in. It's just you know it, the whole album is just full of wonderful bits like that, and the songwriting is just is just great. I'll stop. I'll just stop gushing about it now. Other people can talk. You know I like it. Yeah, I'm getting that impression. I, I thought with going places, it had a great outro, but it went on for a bit too long. But I did like it. You know, when I listened to the album first time round, yeah, the last four songs, I kind of thought that they're pretty weak. It ends weakly. But on the second listen, uh, they all went up a tick. And the, the last song... Try 13 Hardcore Slash know. Ballad. That came so close to three ticks. I really wanted it to carry on at that pace. I was really disappointed when it turned into stroke ballad and stopped being hardcore because it, it, it kicked off brilliantly. If you go back to their early stuff, the hardcore bit is what we were and this is what, this yeah, is where yeah. we're going. Yeah. Well, I would say, yes, it, it's, it's a nod back to their earlier days. It's kind of like a, a last hurrah of the yeah. of the young teenage fan club, really. And it, it's quite sweet from that point of view. And what you say, Will, about listening to the first time and thinking these, these last songs are, are weak. I, I thought that about the album for a long time and, and I think I was wrong about that. I think they're, they're much better. And it's, this, it goes back to what I'm saying about them really sort of front-loading it with all the most immediate songs and I'd say I think that's that's them they've got something to prove after their last album and and they're going to damn well do it we've been talking a little bit about how they seem to be really appreciated by other musicians Mm -hmm. and clearly they're good strong songwriters first listen and then the second listen you start to get into it and you start to really appreciate what's going on there's a sort of cheery everymanness to it the topics are pretty universal there's nothing that anybody could really dislike there's you might get annoyed by some of the too clever wordplay perhaps but actually a lot of the sentiment in most of the songs is pretty universal yeah 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 but not not banal and not yeah i think universal in a very good way you know it's not a kind of um yeah they, they remain interesting yeah so again not much arguing about the album this week we all seem yeah. to like it well uh, for those people who like my my geeky statistics ha, i do let england shakes scored 24 points or 24 ticks and this album scored 23 ticks oh so i clearly liked it a lot even though i was kind of belly aching a little bit it was a joy to discover i enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i would i thought i knew teenage fan club i clearly well i thought i knew what they sounded like but clearly i didn't at all and it's yeah it's an album that i think i'm going to listen to a lot more well, I'm delighted you liked it. And I have to say that this is not my favourite Teenage Fan Club album. Their follow-up songs from Northern Britain, I think, is even better. I think that is a better album too. I, I think some of their more recent stuff is right up there as well, I have to say. If anybody had disliked the album, I would have been prepared to fight them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say that I, I like this album 
more for having had a proper listen to it a few times the, than I did before. Um, I think I think it's just wonderful. I think it's a an underappreciated, genuine classic. I think if it had been released not during the Britpop era, it's it, you know it's more seventies, more sixties, isn't it? Um, and even the sort of resurgence of sort of bluesy guitar music in the 2000s I just think it would have been appreciated more commercially perhaps almost any other time than when it was released when it was just sort of lost yeah. in the morass of noisy Oasis albums and so on um, I think it, it's, a, it's a work of genius I think it's a genuine classic I'm always banging on about the, the rubbishness of, of best of lists but this should be and you're Rolling Stone top 500 this should be in the top 100 this should be in the top 20 it's that good an album I think I think it's spectacular and it's not even my favourite Teenage Fan Club album. I'm not sure that there's room in the top 20 greatest albums of all time for two Teenage Fan Club albums. But I, I, nonetheless, I, I did Why enjoy not? it a lot. It was good. Very good. You're just trying to stop Nick fighting you by saying that, aren't you? <laughs> Couch it in terms that will stop him getting violent. Um, we're on the cusp here. <laughs> yeah. the cusp. Hold him back. It's a good job we're in four different houses, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Don't <laughs> tell the listeners. Otherwise. The listeners don't know that. Uh, we like the monkeys. We all live together. In there. <laughs> that's why I was so annoyed at um, Will well, dissing I, the monkeys. It's I, I like, get that's it my now. life. I get it now. now. I mean, in this album, I kind of heard bits of the monkeys. A little bit of Aztec Camera was in there. A little bit of Beatles, a little bit of Squeeze, a little bit of ELO. And they're all great touchstones for me. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Nick, you want to have the final word on it? Um... Well, I liked it. That's good enough for me. <laughs> Quick musical break, and then we're going to talk about our favourite albums <laughs> yeah. and uh, number one singles of 1995. <laughs> right, so... Um we're going to look at the wider musical scene of 1995 now um, and talk about our favourite albums and favourite number one singles from that year. So let's start with Will. Favourite album? Album-wise, three-year in there for me. What's the Story, Morning Glory, by Oasis, which I think is an, an amazing album. Uh, before, before, <laughs> and, I, and I look to see that Al is miming <laughs> being sick. And then The Bends by Radiohead, an absolutely brilliant album full of brilliant songs. Probably my favourite one is um, Street Spirit, which is the only Radiohead song that I can actually play. Outstanding favourite album of that year is Stanley Road by Paul Weller. Yeah, there are some the old amazing guard. songs. Uh, you Do Something To Me, which is like a Stax soul thing. And then the very excellent Broken Stones, which, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's his Weller's ability just to change the angle of the tack of his soul. You know, he's got such a, a depth of things like Motown, Philly and Stax that he just puts it into his songs effortlessly. Um, so yeah, um, it was Stanley Road for me. Nice very metaphor good. usage. Ah, thank very you. Phew. And if it's um, favourite number one single of the year. <laughs> well, not a vintage year for number ones. I thought it was going to um, be better than this. Yeah, so, but, but the outstanding track of that year was um, "Back for Good" by Take That. Oof. What a brilliant song! I love that song. Good choice as well. I have to say. <laughs> there you go. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. 
This would be where I would uh, tell a story about playing that song at a wedding if I hadn't told it two weeks ago. <laughs> I've run out of stories, guys. Come on. Got to come up with some different topics. Yeah, but that, that, that might persuade anyone listening to this to go and listen to the other one. Or to book me for a wedding. One of those. Best, best album, Nick? Probably this one, Grand Prix. Right. You know, this is one of my favourite, favourite, favourites. There's other good things that year. There was the Supergrass album, I Should Coco, I enjoyed that. I liked, there was a Jayhawks album, Tomorrow the Green Grass, and there was Beastie Boys' Root Down album, was quite big for me that year uh-huh. uh, as well. But it's it's still Grand Prix was my absolute favourite, I think. Yep, well, I can see why after tonight. And single, best the number sing- one. Well, the single, God, <laughs> wasn't a great year, was it? It wasn't, no. <laughs> it really wasn't. I can't really look past Back for Good either because I really didn't like either the or Oasis. So, yeah, and I'm looking at the rest. I mean, it was really rubbish, wasn't it? Pretty poor. Yeah. Unless you're yeah, a Robson and Jerome fan. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and who isn't around here? Although I do like to wander around the house occasionally saying, Mr. Bombastic. Ooh. So. <laughs> Careful, you'll be stealing my fire. You know. However, <laughs> but not because it's a good song. No, not because it's a good song. Yeah. I'd pay a dollar to see that. <laughs> Come on then, Al. What you got for us? Oh, I mean, obviously my favourite album is Grand Prix, but I think for for the sake of um, having something else to talk about, I'll pick a, I'll pick a different favourite, a second favourite, which would be. I had a toss-up. I was going to go for the first Alaska album, which I think is a great pop album as well. But I think actually Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and The Infinite Sadness, just because of its ridiculous ambition and the just the ridiculous variety of things that are on it. I like an album that does a lot of different stuff. Talked about Gorky's Sigotic Monkey because of Yours Child's Tonight. I think their their album Spanish Dance Troupe is similar and it just has like it's a million a, different a styles on it. It's a wonderful album, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Yola Tengo, I Can Hear the Heart Beating as one, which is a great favourite of mine. Again, you couldn't pin them down to any one style. They're doing everything. Obviously, the Smashing Pumpkins album is, is a rock album and sometimes it's, a, it's really quite over the top and it's a big rock sound, but... It's really interesting. There's so much, especially the second half of the album, there's so much interesting stuff going on. Three ticks for ambition. Even if it doesn't quite pull it off, I still think it deserves respect for having tried. So that would be my album, apart from Grand Prix. (laughs) And my single. Do you know, for me, the best song that got to number one, and I'm not picking this as a single. Cotton Eye Joe by the Rednecks. Obviously, apart from Cotton Eye Joe. No, the best song, um, you mentioned I Believe by Robson and Jerome earlier, but it was actually a double A side with Up on the Roof, which was originally done by the Drifters. If that had been the Drifters, I'd have picked that as my number one of the year because that's a wonderful song, but I'm not picking Robson and Jerome. Blush Country House. Go on, you're allowed to. Nah, Blush Country House. It's not my favourite Blush song. But given the the dearth of options, that's my pick. What about you, Chris? Yeah, well, I'm going all. Um, I'm going. You're going to go Brit- pulp, aren't you? But I'm going Britpop wipeout. Yeah, absolutely. So Britpop wipeout. I can't see. I can't see past um, different class by pulp. That was that was my album of the year by a country mile. It was the album that we were dancing to. It was the album that was on constantly. And I think it was just uh, just a brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant album of great, great tunes. And I know you prefer his and hers, Al, but I really I disagree. do. Yeah. I think different classes the better is the better the better of the two. Just from that opening track all the way through, you know, it's just got a it's it's got a coherent sound and it's got a it's got a kind of continuous story that I think his and hers doesn't quite hold together in the same way. I think it's also got more humour in it than his and hers, and I always find that. Well, I don't know um, about that. His and hers quite is important quite a little wet. in an album. Yeah, uh, but I think 
different classes funnier. Um, and my single, like yourself, has to be Country House by Blur. And again, it's it's probably one of my least favourite Blur songs. <laughs> but looking at everything else that was in the charts, best number one, it has to be. You know, there's nothing else. Nothing else there, other than Cotton Eye Joe. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> Country House by Blur. Anyway, so that was 95. What's coming next? All through 1995, we've talked a lot about Blur. The album I'd like to do next time is Think Tank by Blur. Ooh. Ooh. It's a funny old album. Difficult album, yeah. But it has got some exceptional songs on it. But I was kind of put off it when it first came out because they put a little sort of EPCD free in the, uh, in the Observer magazine. And I just thought bands like Blur shouldn't be doing stuff like that. Um, anyway, had a few songs off uh, Think Tank, which I actually thought were exceptional, which made me go and seek out the album itself, which I suppose that's what it's supposed to be doing. So we'll do that next time. Good. Looking forward to that one. This is without Graham Coxon, isn't it, Think Tank? I think he left after Think Tank. After Think okay. I think he left during. <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> well, I'm sure we can do some research. Yeah, we'll discover this. Yeah. Find sure. out before. Yeah. So yeah, this has been CB Music Club. Thank you very much, Nick. Pleasure. Chris. You're welcome. And Will. It was my pleasure and welcome. And thank you for listening. Thank you.